Church, it is uh, a joy to be together this Resurrection Sunday. It's even a greater joy to look at his word and hear from it. Today's uh, scripture passage comes from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. If you'd like to use the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, you can find the passage on page 885. 885. Luke 24, starting in verse 13 through 35. And would you please rise in honor of this reading of God's holy and inerrant word. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened uh, up to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. 
Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for the reading of this particular text from your holy word. And now we pray for the Holy Spirit to come to accompany the preaching of this text that our hearts may be warmed, that our hearts may respond rightly to the truth of the resurrection, that we might come away transformed by what we find here. We pray this all for your glory, our good, and in Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, we are here this Easter morning to commemorate the greatest event to ever take place in human history. An event that occurred in time and space, not, not in myth or legend, not in imagination or wishful thinking. No, we are here to celebrate the historical, factual claim that Jesus of Nazareth was resurrected from the dead. That a man lived thousands of years ago in the region of ancient Palestine, that's nothing unusual. That he was known to be a great teacher and miracle worker who amassed a large following is nothing unique. Even the claim that he was handed over to religious authorities to be crucified by the Romans is not unbelievable. Historians can point to similar occasions of messianic figures leading a radical movement, making bold claims only to be swiftly squashed by Roman authorities. But what is unusual, what is unique, what is considered unbelievable by people back then as much as it is today is the historical claim of an empty tomb, discarded grave clothes, and of course, a resurrection from the dead. If all of this is a lie, if all of this is just make-believe, if the resurrection did not occur in time and space, then Christianity completely crumbles. Our religion rests on objective claims, objective truths, such as this miraculous claim of the resurrection. Like the Apostle Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. Our faith would have been built upon a fiction. Yes, it's a compelling and inspiring fiction, but nonetheless, built upon a fiction and not a fact. This is a unique problem for Christianity. See, most religions don't depend this much on historical truth claims. Like take Buddhism, for example. If you took away the miracles attributed to Gautama Buddha, if you conclude that many of the stories that we know about him are just mere legends, they're not historical events, that wouldn't be a very huge loss for Buddhism. The miracles of Buddha were never essential to the claims of Buddha. His teachings are what really matter. In fact, you could argue that you'd probably get more followers in this secular age if you downplayed any of the miraculous. Then that allows people to be entirely secular and still embrace Buddhist teachings without having to accept the miraculous, without having to accept the supernatural. But you can't do that with Christianity. You can't take away the resurrection and expect the Christian faith to have any meaning, to have any significance for you. If there is no resurrection, then friends, we're wasting our time here. You've been wasting your Sunday mornings coming here. I mean, just think about all the sleep that you've given up 
for nothing. If you've ever given an offering, that was a waste of money. If you've ever avoided cheating or lying or just doing whatever it takes to get ahead because you were trying to please God, you were trying to obey him, well, that was a poor choice. You could have been so much further ahead in life. You could have been so, you could have been, could have been so much more successful in this life because that would be it, just this life. Again, Paul says that if Christ had not been raised, then we as Christians of all people are most to be pitied because we backed the wrong horse. We put all our eggs into a basket that broke. We staked everything on Jesus and came up short. That would be true if there is no resurrection. And we would be pitiful. We would be sad. And that's the very reaction that we see in today's passage. We see two pitiful, sad disciples of Jesus walking along the road to Emmaus. Friends, as we study this particular text, I want us to consider three perspectives as we look at chapter 24 of the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible, please uh, make sure you're following along in Luke 24. And if you want to open up your uh, bulletin, there's an outline there to follow. There's three perspectives. First, we'll look at life without a resurrection. Second, we'll consider how it's possible to look at Jesus, to look directly at him without recognition. And third, we'll look, uh, we'll, we'll look to Jesus through the lens of Scripture. So let's begin by taking on a perspective that many of you might be unfamiliar with because You've grown up in church. You've grown up in a Christian home, and you've always been celebrating Easter like this. You've been coming to celebrate the resurrection. But to understand this passage, you really have to put yourselves in the shoes of these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Then you'll be able to look at life without a resurrection. Let's look at life without a resurrection. The story here picks up after the very public execution of Jesus of Nazareth in the city of Jerusalem. We're told that this is also after some female disciples stumbled across an empty tomb on Sunday morning. And after a vision of angels telling them that Christ has risen. And later on, we're told on that same very day, two disciples were traveling from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus. And they were in the middle of talking about all the events that had just occurred when Jesus, of all people, catches up to them on the road. But they don't recognize him. Look at verse 17. He, Jesus, said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Now some translations say that their faces were downcast. I mean, you could see the sadness on their faces. You could also see the shock. They were shocked that someone coming from Jerusalem could be unaware of the very public events that just took place. They were staring at Jesus in shock and in sadness. And one of them named Cleopas speaks up and shares his version of the events. And then he says in verse 21, look at there, verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, we had hoped. That's past tense there, suggesting that they didn't have this hope anymore. 
And why should they? Why should they? At this moment, all they knew was Jesus' crucifixion. All they knew was that their rabbi, the one that they believed to be the Messiah, had just been brutally executed. Their hopes were understandably shattered. Yes, yes, they heard rumors of an empty tomb, but, you know, there could be a number of explanations for that. So their initial reaction was not, empty tomb? Are you serious? Praise the Lord. Jesus is alive. He's been resurrected. No, no, that's, that's not how they responded when they heard that. No, instead, they were sad and probably thinking, oh, great. The authorities have killed our master, and now grave robbers have stolen his body. Great. Insult had been added to injury. This was a pair of pitiful disciples walking the road to Emmaus, and it's because they were looking at life without a resurrection. They were looking at Jesus' life in ministry. They were looking at what he had sacrificed, what he had suffered, all without a resurrection, and death was the end of him. At the same time, they looked at their own lives. They looked at their own ministry. They looked at all that they had sacrificed, all that they had suffered, and death would be the end of them as well. What a waste. How sad. If the origin of life, if the origin of your life means nothing, if it just happened by random chance, and if the end of, your, of, of life and the end of your life is nothingness, if you just simply cease to exist, well then, friends, it's a fool's errand to try to create meaning and significance to all that takes place in the in-between. If we're just a bunch of cells, if, if we're just a mixture of chemical processes and electrical impulses, if, if we're just glorified germs, in the end, then I'm sorry, but those accomplishments that you're so proud of, they mean nothing. And the love that you feel for your spouse or that you feel for your children or for your friends, that's nothing. And that career that you're building and all that respect and reputation that you're gaining in the grand scheme of things are nothing. And if there is nothing awaiting you after death, just non-existence, if this material world is all there is, if there's no continued existence of the soul, then that, my friends, is a terribly hopeless worldview. That way of looking at life offers you no hope to face the trials and tribulations that are bound to come in your life. What reason is there to endure hardship in this life, if this is all there is. If I can't see any alleviation of my pain, if I can't see any relief of my suffering, then why shouldn't I just give up? Death would actually be a welcomed friend. Experiencing nothingness is far better than experiencing pain all the time. Now, I, I may not agree with the philosophy of a Nietzsche, of a John Paul Sartre, but at least I can, I can respect their courage to face the logical conclusion of their philosophy, of their existentialism. They looked at life without a resurrection, and they accepted the absurdity of it all. 
They looked at life without a resurrection, and they resigned themselves to the nothingness. They accepted it. But friends, if you're not willing to go there, if you want your life to count, you want your relationships and your accomplishments to matter, if you are looking for ways to actually endure all of the trials and tribulations of life, then you need life with a resurrection. You need life where the possibility of Jesus' resurrection and your resurrection are real and reasonable. Resurrection, I hope you see, makes all the difference. The hope of sharing in the resurrection gives you a real reason to live and to love, to to sacrifice and and to serve. Because what it means is that what you do now matters beyond this life. It truly does echo in eternity. And what's more, looking at life with a resurrection, it gives you the actual hope and the strength that you're going to need to endure the worst of suffering in this life with dignity. And when it comes to death itself, yes, it, it will never be a welcomed friend. But at least it doesn't have to be a feared enemy. Because Christ has defeated death in his resurrection. He has removed its sting. For those of us who look at life with a resurrection, we can also look at death not as a sad conclusion to an unfinished life, but as the beginning of a new and grander story to tell. It was C.S. Lewis who once said that for those who hope in the resurrection, this life It's only the cover and the title page of the story. Upon death, we begin, quote, chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what happens when you look at life and death with a resurrection. But for those two disciples on the road, they couldn't see it. At least not yet. They were struck with a form of spiritual blindness. They were walking and talking with Jesus about the events surrounding Jesus, all at the same time being clueless as to who he really is. And so this leads to our second perspective found in the text. Looking at Jesus without recognition. I mean, he's right there in their lives. He's in front of them. And yet they don't recognize his presence. And you're probably thinking, how in the world is that possible? I mean, it's so obvious. He's right in front of you. How can you miss Jesus? And yet, doesn't that describe all of us? Jesus, at the same time, can be so present. He can be right there with us working in our lives. And yet we still fail to recognize him. The truth is, we're all liable of making this same mistake, of failing to recognize when Jesus is in our lives. Now, verse 16 says, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So the question, of course, is who or or what was keeping them from recognizing Jesus? Why why couldn't they see what should have been obvious to them? And, of course, the more pressing question for all of us, the answer is, who or what keeps us from recognizing the obvious presence of Jesus in our own lives? Well, on one hand, we could say that the answer is God. 
In that moment, for a good reason, God kept those disciples from recognizing Jesus. I mean, if you can believe that God can raise Jesus from the dead, then it's no stretch to believe that he could temporarily obscure the vision of these two men, preventing them from recognizing Jesus, a man that they clearly knew they were following him for many years prior. But we can go further than just simply saying God. One reason we often don't see what should be obvious to us is because of unexamined assumptions. Unexamined assumptions. In other words, all of us have these unexamined presuppositions that can end up skewing how we interpret the evidence that's placed before us. That's what happened to these two disciples. They were provided as we read in the text, they were provided with eyewitness testimony from multiple credible sources, people that they knew very well, people that they trusted, but they still explained it away. Why? I'd argue because they were predisposed to not believe in a resurrection. I mean, I think, we, I think we just assume that people back then, ancient people, are just prone to believe in the miraculous, that a resurrection would have easily fit within their plausibility structure. That, 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 but the truth is that early disciples were just as surprised, just as skeptical as we would be if we heard about someone rising from the grave. You see, in first century Judaism, there were two major camps. You had the Sadducees on one hand, and you had the Pharisees. If you're familiar with the gospel accounts, you've, you've met these characters. They uh, are, are, are very often opposing Jesus in his ministry. Now, Scripture tells us that the Sadducees are the, are the ones who don't even believe in a resurrection. They are more like modern-day liberal theologians who just wholesale deny the miraculous. They, they reject the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels or demons. They didn't believe in heaven or hell. And of course, Sadducees did not believe in the idea of a resurrection. The Pharisees, on the other hand, believed in all of that and believed very strongly in these things. Now, they, though, saw resurrection as a future corporate reality tying up everything in the end times. And so in other words, resurrection for a Pharisee was a concept reserved for a great last day. And on that day, all of humanity, everyone would be resurrected. So to claim a resurrection would essentially be to claim that the end has come in the mind of a Pharisee. And so for a Pharisee, the resurrection claim of an individual man taking place in the middle of history would make no sense. It would be theologically inconceivable for a Pharisee. So if these were the two dominant viewpoints among first century Jews, then you can see why these two Jewish men on the road to Emmaus were predisposed to not believe in a resurrection. And it's not surprising that they therefore ignored the evidence that was presented before them. Their sadness coupled with their suspicions of a resurrection, led them to conclude that Jesus' body was likely stolen and that these reports coming from those women are just probably the product of their extreme grief or their over-exaggerated over imagination. That's how they explained it away. That's how they brushed it aside. Because their unexamined assumption had predisposed them not to believe 
That's why they couldn't see reality when it was staring them in the face. Well, friends, in the same way, I think it's due time that we examine some of our assumptions that we have about Jesus. And I think it's a fair assumption to assume that many of us here do believe in a resurrection. We believe, we would say, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But even though, even though we consider ourselves believers of Jesus, we often fail to recognize his own presence in our lives. I mean, he could be walking alongside us in this life and we miss him. And that's because we too operate out of certain presuppositions. We have unexamined assumptions about what it looks like when Jesus appears to us on the road of life. When he shows up, we assume it's going to be spectacular. It's going to be amazing. I mean, we assume and, and we approach, therefore, worship or we approach our personal devotions expecting these intense mystical experiences where if Jesus is really there, if Jesus is really working, then, then I'm going to be filled with, with great zeal and great passion. That's what we assume. And if that's not happening, if we're not experiencing these things, if our walk with Christ just feels plain and feels ordinary, then it's tempting to, tempting to conclude that Jesus must not be active in my life right now. He must not be present. Or, or, or worse, maybe he's not even real. Maybe I've made all this up. Maybe I've, I've fallen for a lie. But by expecting the extraordinary all the time, could you be overlooking Jesus in the ordinary? When Jesus appeared to his disciples on the road, notice clouds didn't part. Angels didn't trumpet his entrance. Glory did not shine all around when he appeared on the road. Jesus often walks alongside us in ways that we often overlook. We expect the fierce windstorm. We expect the mighty earthquake. We expect the raging fire. But when Jesus shows up, it's usually in the sound of a gentle whisper. And maybe you feel like Christ is not there for you right now. Maybe you feel like Christ has abandoned you. Maybe you feel like he's not working in your life anymore. Maybe you think that he's left you alone because you've been neglecting him so much. You've been disobeying him, and so he's, he's abandoned you. But what if? What if he is right there walking this life with you, walking the road of life with you, and you're just not seeing him? What if your assumptions need to be reexamined? What if you need to start looking for Jesus in the ordinary? Which leads us to another factor that we need to consider, a factor that keeps us from recognizing Jesus present in our lives. You see, these, these two men on the road to Emmaus, and, and at the same time, many on the broad road of life, they're only looking for someone to redeem their circumstances. They want someone to redeem their circumstances while Jesus has come to redeem their souls. See, Cleopas said it himself. He said he had hoped Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. And by that, he meant to redeem the nation of Israel from political bondage to the Romans. The Jews were looking for a great leader. They were looking for a messianic figure to free them from Roman rule. And many were convinced in those days that Jesus was the one. He was their Messiah. He was going to liberate them. 
But then he ended up on a Roman cross. And all hope of redemption was lost. Look at verses 20 to 21. Cleopas says, he tells us about how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They crucified him, but we had hoped. In other words, do you see the connection? Crucifixion shattered their hope of redemption. But of course, the irony, the irony is that the crucifixion turned out to be the very means by which God intended to redeem all of us. Without the resurrection, you can't see that. Without the resurrection, that doesn't make sense. Before Christianity, you have to understand, the message of the cross was a Roman message. And it simply said, if you oppose us, we will crush you terribly. But the resurrection redefined the Roman cross. Because of the resurrection, the cross now communicates a message of redemption. And not simply a, a message of redeeming your circumstances, but Redeeming your very soul. And maybe some of you here are, are interested in Christianity because you're going through a difficult time. Maybe you're, maybe you're going through some difficult circumstances right now. Maybe you have relationship problems in your family, in your marriage. Maybe you're dealing with some financial troubles or, or you've got a, a physical ailment that is just weighing on you. It won't go away. So what you're looking for is healing, emotionally, physically. You're hoping for redemption, redemption from your financial hardships or from your relational mess. But do you recognize in all of that, you're only seeking for Jesus to redeem your circumstances? If that's all you want from him, then the crucifixion will make no sense at all. What's a dead prophet going to do for you? How's a dead Messiah going to help you? As your relationships continue to frustrate, as your financial troubles continue to mount, as the sickness continues to spread, you're going to end up like Cleopas saying to yourself, I had hoped he would redeem. I had hoped Jesus would change my circumstances. I had hoped he would heal my broken relationships. I had hoped he would get me out from this, from this mountain of debt. I had hoped that he would cure my sickness. I had hoped. But could it be that you are looking at Jesus without recognition? Could it be that he has actually been with you this entire time, walking with you on this road of life, and you didn't see him? You didn't see what he is actively doing in your life right now because you were so focused on your circumstances. When all along, he was focused on your soul. Yes, Jesus has come to heal relationships, but his primary focus is on healing your broken relationship with his Father in heaven. Yes, Jesus has come to rescue you from debt. That is, your sin debt by paying it off with his own blood. Yes, Jesus has come to cure you, namely, what plagues your sinful heart by giving you a new one. 
by making you into a new creation. That's what he's come to do. And until you recognize the deeper bondage of your soul, until you see that, you will not recognize Jesus as the true redeemer for who he really is. So how do you get those eyes? How do you start to see? How do you see Jesus for who he really is? How is the spiritual blindness that we're describing here lifted for you? Well, friends, if you read the other resurrection accounts where the risen Christ does appear to other people, you might end up getting discouraged and thinking to yourself, hey, come on, that's not fair. That's not fair. These early disciples that we read about, they had the chance to see Jesus face to face. I mean, doubting Thomas, he wouldn't believe until Jesus actually showed up in front of him and allowed him to touch his side. And so you're thinking, well, if I had that chance, you know, if, if, I, if I had that chance, I would respond in the same way, given that same opportunity. But apparently I don't get that chance. So how can I ever share in the faith of these early disciples? Friends, don't you see? Why this particular resurrection account coming out of Luke 24 is so different than the rest? And why it's so encouraging for each and every one of us? Because in order to get these guys to see and to believe, Jesus doesn't say to them, guys, come on, come on, look at my face. Look at my face. No, he doesn't say that. Instead he says, guys, come on. Look at scripture. Look at the Bible. That's what he says. And it leads us to our third perspective, looking at Jesus through the lens of Scripture. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, wouldn't you have loved to have been a part of that Bible study? To listen to the incarnate word, interpret the written word, explaining how all of it bears witness to him? That would have been amazing. Now, we're told in, in verse 30 that later that evening, Jesus ate with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And in that moment, as he broke that bread, their minds were flooded with the memory of the Passover that they had just observed. Where Jesus took bread, where he had broken it, and he made a direct connection between his own body and the sacrificed Passover lamb. And so as they saw him reenact that same moment, now on this side of the cross, on this side of the crucifixion, now suddenly a light bulb went off for them. The text says in verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. They recognized at that moment that the Redeemer came to redeem, not through military victory, but through being sacrificed like a Passover lamb. Now they finally saw with open eyes. The blinders were fully lifted at this moment. But if you see in the text, the two disciples, they continue talking with each other. And they begin to realize that this revelation had begun to lift for them. 
that the blinders began to lift. The revelation was coming even earlier that day while they were still on the road to Emmaus. In verse 32, they say to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So you see, it was the opening of the scriptures, opening up a Bible, was when their hearts began to warm with saving faith. It wasn't because they saw the visible Christ in the flesh. They were walking with him for quite a while, looking at Jesus without recognition. It wasn't because they saw the risen Christ visibly, but because they saw the prophesied Christ in the scriptures. And I think the timing here is intentional, that the blinders did not begin to lift until they started to look at the Bible. They were kept from recognizing Jesus until scripture was opened for them so that their understanding of the cross and resurrection would be rooted in the scriptures and not just in personal experience. That's so important. That's why it took until the Bible was open for them. And it's so relevant for each and every one of us because on this side of heaven, you're probably never going to see the risen Christ face to face, just like these two men. You won't have the privilege of an eyewitness encounter like Mary or like Peter or James or John. You'll probably never have a mystical, ecstatic experience of Christ where he shows up to you visibly in some vision. And you won't be worse off without it. That's the point. Because the point of this particular resurrection account in Luke 24 is that the blinders did not begin to lift until their eyes were looking for Jesus in the scriptures. That's when it says their hearts began to melt and faith began to form. In verse 27, we're told that Jesus, beginning with the books of Moses and then working through all the prophets, showed them how the Old Testament ultimately bears witness to him. I can just picture Jesus expositing Genesis 22, showing how the sacrifice of Isaac foreshadows the substitutionary atonement that he just accomplished on the cross. Or to hear him explain Exodus 12 and how he's the Passover lamb that was slain so that God's judgment would pass over us. Or how he's the true manna of heaven that truly satisfies the soul. Or he's the bronze serpent that can heal us if we would only look up to him. He probably talked to these two men about about the tabernacle and the temple and how all of that pointed to him since he's the true dwelling place where you go to if you want to meet with God. I'm sure he explained how he's the true prophet greater than Moses, and he's the true priest greater than Aaron, and he's the true king greater than David. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He's the Psalm 22 sufferer who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's the seed of Eve who who crushed the serpent's head. And he, of course, is the offspring of Abraham through whom all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He's in every story. He's on every page. All of Scripture bears witness to him. So when you open up your Bible and God 
opens up your mind to see these things for yourself, friends, something in your heart gets ignited. Your heart begins to burn with a warmth as it fills your heart. And you know what that is? That's saving faith. That's faith in Jesus. That's love for Jesus building up in your heart. So do you wish for Jesus to be actively present in your life? Do you wish to to hear Jesus' voice speaking to you? Why are you waiting for the clouds to part? Why are you waiting for the clouds to open up when there is an open Bible in your lap? Look at the scriptures. Go to the scriptures. The Bible speaks today and it carries for us the voice of Jesus saying it was necessary for him to suffer these things that he might cover our sins and bring us back to God. And he is risen and he has entered into his glory and now he beckons all of you to come. Is your heart burning within you? That's God working in you. That's him calling you. Won't you come? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for reminding us this day of the resurrection, proclaiming it to us through the scriptures that Christ is risen indeed, that he is the fulfillment of all scriptures. All the promises we find in the Bible find their yes in Jesus. That promise of new life, eternal life with you, is found through trusting Jesus, following Jesus, as his disciples. May you grant all of us that faith. May you warm all of our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.